0: So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, amends, and I i actually got out the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous today to look, uh, well, I got it out mainly to uh, look at the promises, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But I went back in the book to kind of where it starts to talk about steps eight and nine, and. And what really struck me is how detailed uh, the book was about this and how it was, it was really talking about a lot of the ins and outs of making amends because it's a really uh, a tricky process. I think it needs to be viewed in several different ways in the in the Purely kind of mechanical way. We have to just be really careful what our motivation is and what we are, ex- what results we really can expect from what we the amends we're making. V- very often, I am asked by people if they should make amends to an ex-partner, and almost invariably, I suggest that they don't because usually uh, there's something in that motivation that's about getting back together. And even if there isn't, the potent- what's likely to happen as a result is that the other person is just going to be reminded of something really bad that they don't really want to think about. So unless there's something you can do that will actually be helpful to them, Like, okay, I'm giving you the divorce, you know, or, all right, I'm giving you the alimony, you know. I think we have to be really careful with those amends. Um, And that's not to say, obviously that doesn't cover every situation, but, you know, to me, when it came down to it, the amends that I actually made were about money, and then about getting my brother arrested. And that seemed like I should say something about that. <laughs> <laughs> to say I was sorry, because uh, I had never said that. Did you wait till we get it, he got out? Well, it was long, long after. My brother, Michael, and I talk about this in one breath at a time, he didn't take drugs. He drank a lot. And he, he, when my father retired, my brother bought a house, and so two of us moved in with him. My brother Pat and me moved in with my brother Michael. At the time, I was I just turned 21. I guess it reminds me of a song, but anyway. Uh, mama tried, mama tried. I turned 21 in prison. Okay. Moving right along, Uh, I wasn't in prison. I was imprisoned to drugs and I was very active, not only using drugs, but uh, purveying them to some extent, and mostly being friends with purveyors so that I could get freebies. Um, And uh, the local authorities got wind of this situation and descended upon the house at 6 a.m. It happened that I was working in a bar at the time. I don't know if you want to hear this story, but I'm telling it. I can't stop now. And I was in a band, and we were thinking about moving to another city where somebody might like us more than they liked us there. Um, And so I came home from the bar in my usual state of semi-inebriation and woke up the main purveyor, Uh, well, he was, I think, awake, got him out of bed with the person he was in bed with and said, let's go now. And so we imbibed in some stimulants and got in the car and drove away just by pure accident and coincidence. And three hours later, the house was busted. And we were hundreds of miles away. Uh, So I, I... stayed out of town for a while until you know things cooled down but uh i never said to my brother who was he owned the house so they arrested him even though he didn't even take drugs i never said anything to him i just like snuck back in town a couple months later slunked back in town so when i got sober and did the steps that i called him and it, it was it was weird because I hadn't—I hadn't known anything. He had gone through a whole legal case, and I hadn't paid attention. <laughs> it was amazing, you know. He didn't go to jail, thank God, but uh, he pretty much lost his house, you know. So, anyway, I'm getting depressed just talking about it. Michael's a great guy, and he's very happy now. Uh, so everything turned out okay, and he doesn't drink anymore. So um <laughs> she never let read your book. what did you read your book? He did read my book, and he actually liked it. yeah, I'll tell you about my if you know Michael you know I would I could talk a lot about him, he's an amazing guy um, so but let me get back into my official role here, which is not uh, memoirist. <laughs> So that's one form, one aspect of amends, actually doing an amends with someone. I think that ultimately it's the least important part. We have done more damage than we can ever make up for. You know, it's done, basically. You know, you can't go back and make up for all those stupid things you said to people and all the people you hurt and, and all the stupid things you did to yourself. You, you just can't make it up. It's gone. It's over. Well, what's important, I think, about the amends is being willing and, to admit that you're wrong and to, and to really live that way. So step six, no, step seven mentions humility, but I would say that steps eight and nine require more humility, that honesty that, you know, we, I really screwed up. You know? And to be able to do that, and that to me is the value of actually doing the amends. It's not, oh, my, I repaired that relationship, I mean, that's great. But when I actually did that and started to apologize to people, it was such a big transformation because I had never been able to apologize to anybody because I was afraid of being wrong, you know, and what that meant to my ego. I was always feeling that I needed to protect my ego, and when I realized I didn't have to protect it, it was incredibly freeing. So I think this step is really transformative on that level. And from a Buddhist viewpoint, it's seeing that there is no ego, that what I'm protecting itself is an illusion. So I'm trying to protect this thing that doesn't exist. I mean, talk about something, a problem. You know, this is... Uh, we can't always perceive that, but actually, you know, when you when you go through this process, I think there's a way in which if you have that understanding, you can kind of shift and see, oh yeah, that's kind of what's going on. There's, there's a, just a freeing thing that, well, there's no real what is it? Where is it? You know? Um. And, it's, of course, it's interesting that when we're busy trying to protect the ego, that is, if if what, if what protecting the ego means that people, we think that then people will either like us or respect us or not think we're jerks or whatever, we're, you know, it's, it's, I think it's about, you know, I, part of it is protecting what I think about myself, but a lot of it, on the surface at least, is about what people are going to think about me. And when I act like that and try to protect my ego, people tend not to think good things about me because of how I wind up acting. So when I'm actually open and honest and admit mistakes, people tend to actually look at me much more kindly. Uh, So that's the irony of it, that the, the protective mechanism itself is counterproductive. It doesn't really solve the thing that you're trying to solve externally. And certainly, if my view of myself is, oh, I need to be good or I'm going to hate myself or something like that, well, I'm screwed because <laughs> I'm never going to be that good. You know, I'm bound to make mistakes. So, in the same way we do the forgiveness practice, I need to. Be able to accept myself as a flawed being uh, if I'm going to be happy yeah. so that to me is what's really critical about this step is how it changes us as people, not and and again the, well I don't know i I think I've said this uh, over this period of this class, but i will I hope I've said it that the steps can be viewed as a, a step-by-step process where you do things and then you get to the end. But th- that doesn't mean that much to me, at least, it doesn't. Yes, it's useful, it's got its function. But what the steps are really about to me is the way that they transform us into being different people. So that each step has a function of helping to change who we are so that eventually we, we become this person who, as it, the steps call it, spiritually awake. You could call it emotionally mature. You could just call it mature. Uh, uh, but it's many things, you know, it's, it's, uh, and, and part, a big part of it to me is this humility, honesty, willingness to be wrong. A willingness to take responsibility, and, and obviously steps eight and nine are the ultimate uh, element of that in the steps. You know, we start with the kind of writing the inventory. Well, we could say we start with the admitting we're powerless, but the in, the, in this formal practice in the middle of the steps, we start with, okay, yeah, I did this, yeah, I did that. Okay, I'm going to tell I'm going to tell one person about it. Okay, and then we kind of start, and then it's like, okay, I'm going to try to change, you know, try to have these defects removed. That's not obviously how I view it as defects. We talked about it last week, I hope. Um, I can't remember what happens week to week, so I just trust that I do it right when I'm there. Um, But then we get to this place of, okay, I've kind of done this stuff internally. Now, this is the social element, right? There's this internal part that's the honesty and really looking at things, and then there's the external part of trying to change my behaviors you know, that's the Buddha Dasa quote: "Beseeching the law of karma through action, not merely with words." That I kind of equate with step seven. This is how I'm going to change myself. And then finally, there's this social element of my relationships and and healing that, so that I'm operating in the world in a comfortable way. So that so that uh, there's a then a. Um, uh, the harmony between my inner life and my outer life. I've not only kind of resolved things internally through the inventory process, but I've somewhat resolved them and eased them externally through this amends process. Another aspect of these steps, as I talked about in the forgiveness practice, is that when we make this list, you look at the list and who's on it. You know, maybe yeah, you could maybe some of your enemies are on it. I don't know. I, when I got sober, I didn't really have a lot of people I would call enemies. I actually might have a few more now. Um, I'm hoping that's because I live with integrity. Or not. I mean, yes, I do live with integrity, but that might not be the cause. Anyway, um, what I found was it was a list of my family members and, and exes. And... Uh, those were all people I loved. They were all the people I harmed. And they were the people who harmed me. So that was an insight. Yeah. That's, and uh, as I say, that, that's related to intimacy. And, um, and so it, what that brings up then and what this process also then brings up is our whole uh, conditioning and history around relationships. So ultimately, I think this step then is going to be, well, no, I won't say, uh, that. another vital part of this step ultimately is about healing our intimate relationships and, and particularly, you know, being able to be in an intimate relationship, having a partner. And, um, you know, I think there are very few people who have gotten sober or have gotten into recovery and in whatever program, who haven't had to deal with this. And indeed, Bill Wilson talks about this in the 12 and 12, that this is really what most of the problems were about anyway, that the alcoholism or the drug addiction, you know, it's so tied up with our relationships. And part of it's tied up with our family history and what we got from them, and part of it's, tied up with the wounds of what we've had in intimate relationships. And so this becomes, for a lot of us, after the initial dealing with the addiction, dealing with learning to live like a healthy, conscious being, dealing with the inventory working with the relationship stuff then I think for a lot of people becomes like the, the a big chunk of the recovery process so for me that really kicked into gear at about two years sober and that seems fairly typical I don't think there's by any means any time schedule but it seems like I'd kind of worked through the basically like getting sober figuring out how that what that meant how I was going to kind of deal with the world and and I was kind of starting to point myself in a healthy positive direction and then I got in a relationship and actually I had to get out of a relationship but anyway that was in the first year and then my sponsor started to work with me with that and that became like wow I mean that that was at 2 years sober and uh You know, 10 years later I got married. So that was about the, you know, the arc, you know, it took like 10 years to kind of work through that stuff to get to the point where I was actually, you know, in a relationship that was working. It wasn't the one that I got into at two years sober. Um, but, uh, you know, I learned a lot in that one and, uh, kind of like the prep for the, for the next one, I guess. And, uh, so this is where, you know, the steps become not about uh, just going through the steps. They become about our lives, and and uh, and they become so tied up with our lives. I mean, the idea that, you know, I've oh, done the steps like you're done, or or even that they are just something that's over here that you do. Oh, I'm working the steps with my sponsor. Well, great. You know, what about the rest of your life? <laughs> You know, um, and ultimately, to me, the steps are th- something that we live, they're not something we work. Uh, you cer- certainly a good idea to work them in the beginning so that you understand them and that you have a good familiarity with them. And, and, and I do think there's something um, uh, good for our self-confidence to, s- to go through them and kind of feel like, okay, and now I'm at step 12 and now I'm going to start sponsoring people or doing service great, and I'm doing prayer and meditation, and I've written my inventory, I've made med- It's like, yeah, I've, I've been through this process, uh, and doesn't, but not that, okay, I'm done with the process, but rather that each of the elements of that process is now part of my life, and I need to see what, what now needs to be emphasized and what needs to be uh, cultivated, and uh, how that's all going to integrate. Anytime anybody has, like, a question or a thought at this point, you know, let me know. I, I kind of have a, a few um, things to get into. Uh, in fact, I think what I'd like to get into is uh, the promises. and I actually might, um, might go back. Uh, I'm not... A uh um, somebody who's read the big book lots and lots of times. I I used to go to you know, I read it on my own and then I used to go to book studies and yeah um, yeah. me, for those, of, well, those of us are not in AA or yeah. the big book, you explain the promises? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. Yeah. And 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 first of all, I would say that if you're interested in recovery, that um, you should try to read these, those two books. They're, they're the foundation books of, of recovery, the big book of AA and the 12 and 12. There's, uh, they're certainly written in a language and out of a culture that's very different from what we have today, but there is some stuff in these books that really nails it. And and some of it's kind of funny in its own weird way, um, some of it's very inspiring. Uh, but I want to say that so promises is just a term that uh, has been applied to this certain couple of paragraphs in here. It's not really the the book doesn't call it the well, I, I, I guess maybe it refers them, but it doesn't say here's the promises. But one of the things that's interesting is that there's an earlier point in the book, after step five, where there's another set of promises. It says after step five, which is that when we uh, share our amends with someone else, and the step says we... What what did I say? My amends, right? Sorry, thank you. We share our inventory with someone else. It's good to have people here who actually... Are listening and know what the steps are. (laughs) Right. No. I mean, take care of your back, please. Um, We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So after we do that, it says, once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, we are delighted. It's right there. That's nice. We can look the world in the eye. Aha. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. That really sounds like a good deal, because <laughs> that can be... I can remember sometimes. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator, whatever that is. But I think we could just say we feel kind of connected. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. I like that one a lot, because it's no longer just theoretical. The feeling that the drink problem or whatever the problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we are on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Now this is one of the places people complain about you know that the steps talk about God. But if you one of the things reasons to read this book is so that you know what's actually in it rather than just what people say about it. This book talks about higher power and God in many, many different ways. Some of them are very different from a typical Christian view. Walking hand-in-hand with the Spirit of the universe sounds, you know, much more in harmony to me with my own beliefs, because it's a sense of uh, parallel, there's a parallelness. It's not, as I I've talked about in here, you know, the higher power being up here and I'm down here. God is, down. that's not how I view it. It's me trying to work in harmony with God. So, this idea I'm walking hand in hand, that resonates for me. The broad highway. The broad highway. You know, it's very open. It's not do it, you know, my way or the highway. It's this broad, broad highway. Um, so, uh, some of, the, some of those ideas kind of show up in these promises. So these promises are, it says, this is after it's talking about step nine, made a searching, fearless, I'm sorry, I'm just like, I can't think. Um, made direct amends to the, such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, Painstaking. We will be amazed before we are halfway through. <laughs> How do you know when you're halfway? But anyway, we're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. And this is, uh, you know, the fact that it's a new freedom and a new happiness I think is important because our idea of what happiness is changes when we get into recovery. <laughs> You know, I used to think happiness was being loaded. You know, uh, happiness was getting laid. You know, happiness was turning my amp up to eleven. Well, that's still happiness, but <laughs> so I think that to me that's what this is saying: that we're going to discover a different way of understanding happiness. It's not just exaltation or bliss. It's We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. That is a critical, critical statement, just when you're working with the the forgiveness process. To not have to regret the past or wish to shut the door. It says something more about that. It leaves a little sentence in between. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. Ah, This is obviously pointing to the same kind of happiness that the Buddha talked about. The Buddha said that peace is the highest form of happiness. But it's funny that it has that sentence in between. You could say, we will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. So I'm not sure why they edited it that way. Someone else might have more insight into that. That they put this sentence in between about serenity and peace but this is a really really critical idea to me and one that i refer to myself and for others no matter how far down the scale we've gone we'll see how our experience can benefit others i think that's such an important idea to keep with us throughout life because it's not just about being down the scale it's about things go wrong there are failures there are pains there are breakups there are losses that we get lose you know we get fired we lose a house. We lose a child. I mean, that, and we will see how our experience can benefit others. It's such a critical idea. And it's one of the ideas, actually, that's in the uh, how, to choo- how We Choose to Be Happy book, which it's, it's not one of the ones that I put down here because I didn't want to overload you, but one of them is called Recasting. And it's about when, when something goes wrong, people who are really happy, when something bad happens to them, they find a way of turning it into something positive. So I think of the people who started uh, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. You know, that they, Their kids, kid was killed by a drunk driver. And instead of letting that become a reason to become embittered, they turned that into something positive. We'll see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. (sighs) Thank God. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. So that's three successive sentences where self is mentioned. Self-pity will disappear, we'll lose interest in selfish things, and self-seeking will slip away. Well, Maybe that's because we realize that there is no self, <laughs> you know, that there's nothing to protect anymore, as I was talking about. It's just, we don't have to fight so hard to make our life, make ourselves be okay. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. Well, fear of people definitely comes through this process. Economic insecurity, I'm not sure how that happens unless it's the karmic effect of paying off our debts. Uh, I have to confess that many people have complained to me that they haven't experienced that promise. So, um, f- fear, I'm not sure if I have fear of economic insecurity. I have concern about economic insecurity. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. That's just, again, such a critical idea and so much about what happens as we get clearer, as our minds become more clear, as we become less uh, obsessed, as we become less self-centered, as we deepen our awareness through practice, through meditation, through serenity, There's intuition becomes stronger. Because we all have wisdom inside us, but it's mostly blocked by our own fears and grasping and resentments that are blocking it. And when we let go of that stuff, that intuitive wisdom just comes through. Step 11 talks a lot more about that. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Okay, I don't know what that means. Um <laughs> You know it's it really is like this book was written by a few different people, which in fact it actually was Bill, Bill was the main author, but there were all these people throwing in ideas. so what you know this is more to me about letting go. Uh, when we say When we talk about ourselves, I think we're talking about our our fear and our grasping and our wish to control things. And we realize that if we trust, if we do the right thing, that things work out. If we, but when we try to control things, that actually things don't work out in the same way. And so we could say that, if, that um, you know, we can't do it for ourselves when we're running, coming from the place of ego. But when we are coming from a place of love and wisdom, compassion awareness, then we, we can do it for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. It's a very inspiring piece. Um, and I think that uh, a lot of it really resonates with our Buddhist practice. there's some though uh, you know really special um kind of effects and uh, benefits I think from looking at a recovery process through this step lens the um there is a formal amends or admit, admission of a responsibility that happens in the monastic community and it's kind of part of their rituals, their monthly rituals where they go through the precepts and they sort of sp- speak either to the your uh, mentor or to your community. The ways that you've uh, broken the precepts or stretched the precepts in that month. But, at least according to some of the monks that I've talked to, that's pretty much just ritualized. There isn't that much um, of a, the, the kind of authenticity that's in the steps. Um, having said that, though, um, last week... Uh, and I mentioned I mentioned uh, being with this uh, monastic last week, and the guy who's cooking for the retreat up at the Bayagiri. Well, uh, if I did, I have been teaching a lot lately, so I tell. I didn't. You did. Yeah, I did. Okay. So in talking, so these are this is a an anagārika, which is somebody who's in the process of potentially becoming a monk, and then someone who is. Uh, cooking at the uh, at the uh, winter retreat up at the monastery in Ukiah, which is called Abhayagiri, and um, Kevin, who is the cook, um, mentioned to me that now the abbot of the monastery, Ajahn Pasno, is doing something. Uh, what did he call it? Uh, so, so they're they're having these kind of meetings. Where they're sharing, in a way that I've never heard about monastic sharing, where they go around the circle, and there's kind of a check-in, and then then they start to talk about like what's really going on with them, and um, kind of try to process it a bit. And I've never heard of something like this happening in a in a monastic community, and I'm, I'm really happy to hear it because he says it's really, really effective. The people are, the it's really helped a lot of the monks to. Really be open about the struggles. Uh, I mean, he was, you know, because Kevin was saying it's just so ironic that, you know, people out here are like worrying about, oh, can I get the down payment to buy this house? And the monks are like, gee, can I get another uh, serving of rice, you know? But it, it's the same mind, it's that same grasping. It just gets very trivial when you're living in this renunciate community. Um, and so you know, I think it's important uh for all of us to have a place where we can process these type of uh of feelings and uh, whether it's making amends or whether it's inventory or just sharing um, and and it's one of the this kind of openness and honesty that that is really encouraged and maybe demanded in the steps, uh, is pretty rare in our world. And I I know uh, most of you, I suspect, are in one 12-step program or another, and and you know what it's like when you first encounter that kind of honesty. It's almost shocking, and uh, I guess each person has their own reaction to it, but for me I found it first of all very entertaining. And um, and just really freeing to see that people could talk like this. It was. It, I felt like um, it had been missing from my life, from my whole life. And thank God I'd found it, or thank something I'd found it. Um, and it took me a long time of being in the program before I was able to reach that kind of openness. But once I did find that, it was so freeing. And, um, you know, when people come into a place like Spirit Rock, I don't think they have the same feeling of safety and shared suffering and shared understanding that you have if you go into your AA meeting or your NA meeting or your OA meeting or your SA meeting, that you know everybody there is there for the same reason. Just by being there, they are admitting that they've got a problem. And that in itself, why is that? I don't know why that's comforting. You're all screwed up too, you know. We're not alone. When people come in here, it's more like, by being here, we know that you're sort of interested in Buddhism and meditation. But that doesn't mean you're going to really want people to know you or know what's going on inside you. So oftentimes in these spiritual communities, people get very... Uh, kind of divide split, you know, they kind of get, got their spiritual self, and then they go home and they've got their at-home self. Uh, and they used to call it, maybe they still do, you know, street angels, house devils, you know, kids, kids that behave well when they're out, but when they're at home, they're bad. So, you know, that's kind of, we can kind of carry that into our spiritual life. You know, and and there have been plenty of people, addicts and alcoholics, who have showed up at places like this and acted all spiritual and gone on retreats and, you know, sat long retreats and things like that, people like me. Um, so this is one of the reasons why I'm not, you know, ready to just sort of say, well, Buddhism is a path of recovery. It is... But only if you know how to use it. <laughs> uh, and uh, and also only if you have a group that's going to go along with you on that path. And that's, that's not so easy to find. Excuse me. You're excused.
1: Um, that's the reason that I'm here, because um, uh, I have been involved in uh, OA for about five years six years, and uh, uh, in many ways it's been a, a, a very powerful experience, you yeah. described it very well. And it is a very different um, model in the sense that when we come here there's always somebody like you sitting up there. Right. So there's a sort of a sense when we come here that we're looking to you as the purveyor of something that we need.
0: Right, whoever is up here. Who, whoever up here, yeah. yeah. And uh, when we're
1: in the 12 steps, we're just sitting around the room and we're sharing, yeah. but there's a lot of pieces of that process that I don't relate to. I right. I, I don't like it, in point mm. of fact. Yeah. And so what I, in, in a way, needed to do is to translate it so that it would work for me. And yeah. I come here and I hear you talk about it, and it's like, yeah, 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 like that. Right. Right. Um, but. The point you're making is that, as wonderful as it is to have that recognition here, of a of a what I see as a a, a, a more accurate, better view of what the healing journey is all about, mm-hmm. is that in fact what's happening in the room is the place where the work's got to happen. Yeah. Because uh, it's amazing what happens in that room. Yeah. So it's you have to marry them both. Yeah.
0: <laughs> thank you uh, that's great and and, and just you say that sir, obviously i wouldn't be doing this if i didn't think that buddhism fills in some of the holes in the steps <laughs> you know uh, you know and certainly most people in 12 step programs don't have a <clears throat> the kind of meditation practice that I'm, i would encourage people to have and that you can cultivate through this and and all of that yeah well, that's what step is about you know yeah Right. You know, I I have a little problem up where I live in Snow County. I'm in an NA and have been for, you know, since ninety five. But huh. it's hard difficult to find people that um some people are really rigid with with
1: their program, you know, yeah. it's like it's this way. It's this way. You know, yeah. there's no there's no give or take. And right. so about two years ago I was trying to find a sponsor up there that um would be willing to Think about the idea of being able to blend Buddhism into the Twelve Steps. <laughs> I couldn't. I only found one person, and I asked like over fifty people, and you know we got a big fellowship up there. Man. Yeah. And I was amazed. Oh no, you're you're going to dilute it, you know? Or, oh no, you know we got to stick with this, and you know it's like, what the, you know? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. You know what? You know, we're in the twenty first century. We're not yeah. in the sixteenth century. Come on, you know. Yeah. Like the Catholic Church, Pope, you know, you know, century of the end. But, you know, mm-hmm. just it's I only found one person.
0: Huh? You well, know? I hope that was that's all you needed, though, right? Yeah, but you know, <laughs> it's nice to have a few more. I like, know, it's around, true. You know, and, yeah. And, and well, it's it's changing. Um, but you know, there's no doubt that there's a kind of fundamentalist streak in the recovery world, and, and it's understandable because the fear of relapse you know and the fear of what happens if you don't if something goes wrong you know can really make you think that um, whether i know how this works or not whether I, you know i've got i've just got to do it because it's basically superstitious in a way <laughs> it's like if I, if I don't say this prayer or i don't I don't uh, you know write this inventory then something bad's going to happen you know, um, and so, uh, but but it's understandable where we're coming from. But I, I absolutely feel that uh, it's not uh, ultimately helpful to be <laughs> fundamentalist about really anything, including Buddhism. Uh, and there are <coughs> fundamentalist Buddhists. Um, so I mean, that's why we're here, right? That's why we're, we're uh, offering. A place where we can come and be open about our particular thread of spirituality. I mean, it, you know, it is. I also do see where, again, in the twelve and twelve, Bill Wilson talks about um, the wisdom, all the other wisdom there is out there, and be quick to yeah, right. see where religious people are right. Thank you, and and. Uh, I don't know. That's in the twelve and twelve verses, yeah. So, yeah. and and you know, look, for, you know, look for help in outside places and all that stuff. And you know, it sounds like he's talking about going to therapy, and but and he, and they say, you know, the world's religions have all this wisdom, and you know, they quote the Saint Francis prayer, but they don't say like this is the this is the path. It's just like it's the best they could come up with, basically. You know, they didn't know anything about. Buddhism i is you know it seems very likely that if Bill Wilson had been more exposed to Buddhism, he would have been really interested in it so uh, yeah uh, this is this is what we're dealing with it's one of the reasons why there are springing up like Buddhist recovery groups um, but uh, as you say one the, uh, just about out of time but i I just want to say that one of the uh, issues about a Buddhist recovery group because sometimes people ask me, well, how about if we just have like a peer-led group? And I'm like, yeah, you can do that. But you want to be careful with it because it's not the same as recovery where it's really just about your personal experience. Buddhism really is a pretty subtle... (laughs) A teaching, the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, and a lot of times people read one Pema Chodron book, you know, <laughs> and then start to talk about Buddhism, and they think that they, you know, and then you know if you if you're with a group of people and the other people haven't read anything and you say something like well there's Buddha says there's no self or mindfulness is just about accepting everything you know these kind of basic these ideas that are yeah there's some but that really needs to be elaborated <laughs> you know and and people can walk away with this you know it can become a blind leading the blind thing where people get a really misunderstanding about Buddhism so you know the it's I think it's important for there to be at least a facilitator who has a pretty good practice, you know, has had some uh, retreat practice and has done enough study to have kind of a balanced view of the teachings. So that, you know, Buddhism is traditionally a hierarchical, not to say patriarchal, but, you know, we're, we're working on that. But it's a hierarchical practice. It's always been one teacher kind of anoints the next teacher. And everybody doesn't like that, especially in our culture. You know, we're like, hey, you know, why can't I be the teacher? Well, because you don't know anything. But anyway, you know. uh, But, you know, we all want to be the stars, like American Idol. Well, uh, what if I just go up there and, like, uh, riff, you know. I'll give my own dharma. Okay. So, on that note, I seem to have used up all the time. So let's just sit for one minute. Just taking a breath and relaxing again. Perhaps. Taking a moment of gratitude tonight. We're very fortunate that some people back in the 1930s did figure something out about recovery. And we're very fortunate that these Buddhist teachings have come to us down through the millennia. And we're very fortunate that there's this place, this building, this center. And we're very fortunate that we've found our way here. And that we've found our way with others, that we're not alone here. These are all gifts. May we see the gifts in our life. Each day, appreciate them and take joy in them. May all beings find the gifts of their life. And speaking of gifts, I want to thank everyone for continuing to give Donna each week, and, uh, and I hope you can maintain that. It's, it's very nice to be uh, compensated for this work. and uh, obviously the work is a compensation in itself, but uh, I've really appreciated that people have, have been giving each week, and uh, Spirit Rock's very prompt, the most prompt center about sending Donna. so thank you. And I will see you next week. We'll do Steps 10 and mostly Step 11. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.